Good morning, everybody. Morning, morning, morning. Y'all ready to roll? <laughs> I say y'all ready to roll, and Dave O's over there munching on donuts. So I guess he's ready to go. Okay, well, let's begin, and uh, we got a lot of ground to cover, and uh, let's pray as we begin. Father, we're thankful that you brought us to another Lord's Day. Thank you for all the benefit you've packed into this day. And may it be our delight and our joy to reap that benefit as we gather together to worship you. So please help us today. Thank you for this Sunday school class. Bless every class that's meeting today. Bless the children and the young people. May the seed of your word take root in their young tender hearts and may it grow and bring forth fruit. Bless Pastor Keith's class. Bless us in this room as we meet together and as we think together about the Lord's Supper. Will you give us wisdom and discernment and understanding? Make your word clear to us and we confess that without you we can do nothing. We cannot speak, we cannot hear apart from your grace. So will you help us both to speak and to hear and root these things in our hearts, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay, um, it seems like this, this, what I'm going to say for the first two minutes has nothing to do with the chapter we're on, okay? But it just seems like, doesn't it to you, that over the last several chapters, there have been various positions held by evangelicals on a number of topics. Not everybody's agreed. Um, there are different views on the doctrine of the church, on church discipline, on church government, on baptism, and there are different views on the Lord's Supper. Not all the views on the Lord's Supper are held by evangelicals. We'll come to that in a minute. But we might wonder, why is that the case and what should we do about it? Why are there so many different views on doctrines of the Word of God and what should we do about the fact that there are so many different views on all these things? Well, those are good questions. I don't know, so let's move on. No. <laughs> Why is that the case? Why are there so many different views? That's a little easier to answer than the second question. And I think it's that way simply because we're fallen creatures with fallible minds and the effects of the fall have not altogether been erased. We still have sin remaining in us. And guess what that sin affects? It affects every part of us, including our minds and our ability to think clearly and understand. So, just all of that doesn't go away when we're converted. We have remaining sin. Our conformity to Christ is gradual. The process of sanctification is a lifelong process until we get to glory. So, because that's the case, the sin that remains in us affects our minds. Our understanding is not perfect. So, the two different people who are genuine believers who love God with as much of their heart, soul, mind, and strength as they can, 
can have two different views about the same subject. Isn't that true? Yeah. Why is that true? It's true because we're, our understanding is not perfect and we're still fallen and we're making our way to heaven and we see the issue of baptism differently. I have dear, dear, dear Presbyterian brothers and friends who baptize infants and we don't and we still love each other but we don't see altogether clearly and won't we be surprised when we get to heaven and find out that oh I was wrong about that <laughs> except for our good brother back here who's never been wrong about anything right no your wife disagrees with that Welcome, you guys. We're glad you're here. Y'all know who these are? That's Shannon's mom and dad? Byron and Wanda. There you go. Are you guys Are you guys moved and unpacked? Yes, sir. Wow. I'll unpack thanks to the moving ministry. Good. They were awesome. Great. Glad you guys are here. So we, we differ on things because our understanding is still fallen. We still have the effects of sin. And it's going to be that way till we make our way to heaven. What we should do about that is a more difficult question. And I'll only say this morning that we must continue to search the scriptures faithfully and diligently with a due sense of humility and not with arrogance. Not with, not with pride that I've got this right. What's wrong with you? Because we'll find out that there was probably more wrong with me than there was with you someday. So we, we study and we search the scriptures faithfully and um, we, we study carefully what the church has said down through the centuries on this or that subject with dependence on the Holy Spirit and with a true sense of humility. And wherever we land on whatever issue, we must land with humility and grace and conviction, but not with arrogance. And not with, I've got it and you don't, I'm waiting for you to get on the bandwagon. Okay? And we all look forward to the day when it'll be all crystal clear. The problem is not here. The problem is here. Right? So until this problem is altogether cleared up, guess what? There are going to be differences. So don't let the fact that, that our, good, our good brother uh, Greg Allison has has emphasized all the different positions on all these doctrines and hardly ever settles on where he thinks it is. That's a little bone I had to pick with him. But it's okay. Um, so don't let that disturb you. Don't let that get you all out of whack. Well, what's the problem? The problem is right here. And it's going to be there until we all get to heaven. And that's okay. Okay, so our subject today, there are varying opinions on. There are varying opinions among evangelicals. There are varying opinions among people we have not called evangelicals on the Lord's Supper. 
And there's some pretty significant differences on what it is and what it means. These differences do not hinge on what we call the Lord's Supper. It is called in 1 Corinthians 10.16, Communion. It's called the Lord's Supper, 1 Corinthians 11.20. It's called the Eucharist. Don't, Don't be afraid of that word. The Roman Catholics use that word. That doesn't make the word bad. Eucharist comes from this Greek word, eucharisteo, which means to give thanks. And all we've done is transliterate the word from these Greek letters into English letters. You don't have to know Greek to see some similarities here. This means I give or I am giving thanks. And all we've done is turn that into an English word, eucharist. So it's a perfectly good word. And, and uh, Paul uses that in 1 Corinthians 11.24. Um, it's called the breaking of bread in Acts 2.42. So the differences that exist on what the Lord's Supper is and what we should understand by that are not tied to what we call it. These are all legitimate names for uh, the Lord's Supper. But the most common views on the Lord's Supper, and these are, are widely different, um, there is a view called transubstantiation. Um, this is the Roman Catholic view. It officially dates back to 1215. And this view says that during the celebration of the supper, the bread and wine are actually and literally changed into the physical body and blood of Jesus. It still looks like bread and wine, but its substance is actually the body and blood of Jesus, and we ingest that when we take communion. Um, a similar but slightly different view is called consubstantiation. This is often connected with, with certain branches of the Lutheran church. And in this view, they say Christ is truly present in both his deity and humanity. That's an interesting, that's an interesting position that Christ is present in his humanity. And their language is he is present in both his deity and humanity in, with, and under the substance of the bread and wine. Differences between this view and the Roman Catholic view are relatively small since this view holds to the actual physical presence of Christ in the elements. They don't go quite so far as to say the elements actually become the the literal body and blood of Jesus, but they do say that his physical presence is in, under, and around these elements. Let me say just a brief word about these because we're not going to stay long here. At the end of the day, what these views amount to is a fresh sacrifice of Christ every time they're observed, and the Bible is crystal clear that a sacrifice was offered once for all. If if that bread is the literal body of Jesus, and I tear that bread apart, what am I doing? I'm killing him all over again. Can't do that. His sacrifice was offered once for all. Yes. Yeah. So people that believe that would not be our brothers and sisters. If they if they buy that lock, stock, and barrel, I'd I'd be hesitant to say that. I think they're truly converted Roman Catholics, and I don't think everybody who who says they believe that understands all the ins and outs of that. 
But to sacrifice Christ over and over and over and over and over again is flies right in the face of what the Bible says. Um, the other problem with that view uh, of transubstantiation and to a large extent consubstantiation is that they don't line up with reality. The bread and wine still look, feel, and taste like bread and wine. <clears throat> if we were to do a chemical analysis of the elements after they're pronounced to be the body and blood of Jesus, what are you going to find? You're going to find flesh and blood, or are you going to find bread and wine? Hello, what are you going to find? You're going to find bread and wine. Or grape cheese. Um, they just don't line up with reality, and they deny the clearly... And there, there's a philosophical argument to answer that question that they, why they don't line up with reality. And it's, it's, just, it's just linguistic gymnastics to get around the fact that they're really still bread and wine. So they, they don't change. Um, but they also clearly deny the figurative use of the language Jesus uses in this passage and many others. He said, I'm the bread that came down out of heaven. Jesus said that. I am the bread that came down out of heaven. Do you see that loaf of bread? Man. No. I am the door of the sheep. He said that. I am the door of the sheep. He said, I am the light of the world. 25 watt, 50 watt, 100 watt, 100, 200 watt, what? I am the true vine. He didn't mean that, that he's, that he's made out of whatever vines are made out of and he's got branches coming out and leaves and grapes and... No. Jesus therefore said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in yourselves. John 6.53. Did he mean that? Trick question. Did he mean that? Of course he meant it. But was he teaching cannibalism as the way to get to heaven? Follow that. If, if, if when Jesus said, this is my body and this is my blood, if he meant the literal flesh and blood of Jesus, if that's what he meant, then follow that to its logical conclusion with this statement. Unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink of the blood, you have no life in yourselves. Why did they not jump on the body of Jesus and devour him on the spot? cannibalism and only a handful of people would ever make it to heaven now how ridiculous is that of course it's ridiculous that's not what Jesus meant his language is obviously plainly on the very surface of things figurative and so when he says this is my body which is broken for you this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood is he saying that that piece of bread and that juice suddenly is transformed into the literal body and blood of Jesus? No. No. They're all figurative expressions. And that's as far as I'm going with those two things. If you've got questions, you can chat. We can chat later about that. But then there's also the memorial view, which is very commonly held. The Lord's Supper is simply a remembrance, and I emphasize the word simply, 
a remembrance, do this in remembrance of me, we, we simply recall what Jesus did for his people on the cross. And there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. Okay? D didn't he say, do this in remembrance of me? Yeah. And some who hold the memorial view say that's the only thing that the Lord's Supper is. It's just a remembrance. And then there's what our... Uh, the author of our textbook called, uh, and that John Calvin espoused, the spiritual presence view, which has Christ is spiritually present in the Lord's Supper. And, I, and we would agree with that. Uh, Christ is present wherever people gather in his name. Not his physical presence, but his spiritual presence by the Holy Spirit. He's present and he communicates to us the benefits of his saving activity. Some of all this view describe the Lord's Supper as more than a memorial, as a means of grace, a means by which grace actually comes to those who partake by the Holy Spirit. Um, our, one of our former pastors and a good friend of many of us, Rich Barcellus, wrote this book uh, just a few, uh, just, I don't know, a few years ago, 2013 called the Lord's Supper as a means of grace more than a memory. Um, if you want to read this, I, I, I encourage you to read it. The middle part of the book gets really heavy, and you gotta, you just got to slog your way through it because it's a lot of very careful exegesis. And that's kind of scholar rich is. Uh, but, it's, but it's helpful in its conclusion that the Lord's Supper is more than just a mere remembrance. It is a means of grace, and we'll, we'll come to that later. And there's an older book... It's been around since about 1960 by a guy who passed away in 1965, Ernest Kevin, K-E-V-A-N. I don't know if it's Kevin, Kevin, or Kevan, but a really, really, really helpful book on the Lord's Supper. And he, he also takes the view that the Lord's Supper is, is more than a memorial. It is a means of grace, and we'll come to talk about that here pretty soon. Um, Allison, just for your info, Allison does not use the term means of grace to describe the Lord's Supper, but I'm prepared to say that it is that. Um, it's a memorial, yes, but there's more than mere remembrance here. Um, and our own confession, the London Baptist Confession of 1689, sets forth that view, although it doesn't use the technical term means of grace. Now, those are the, those are the most um, widely held views of the Lord's Supper. So let's zoom out a little and take a broader, more comprehensive look at what the Bible teaches about the Lord's Supper. And I'm going to say four things. Um, there's something that we give in the Lord's Supper. We give loyalty. Now explain that. There's something we do. We remember, and we eat and drink. That's something we do. There's something we receive, and that's grace, and we'll talk about that. And there's something we anticipate, and that's the great final last consummation when Jesus returns. Okay, so what we give is loyalty. What we do is remember, eat and drink. What we receive is grace. What we anticipate is the great last consummation. What we give is loyalty. Um, 
we don't hear a whole lot about that these days because it's something that's i think it i think it's a lost aspect of the lord's supper but it has its roots in the nature of the lord's supper as a covenant meal so let's talk about this a little bit before we go back to the old testament to get the groundwork for this do remember that the lord's supper was instituted in the midst of a what which is a meal the passover meal they were eating it's a feast they were sitting down eating they had food it was a meal and it was right smack in the middle of that thing that jesus instituted the lord's supper so it has its roots in a meal and what we do when we come to the lord's supper is we eat and drink when do you do that at a meal so it was introduced and in, inaugurated in the midst of the passover meal the terms of those of a meal we eat and drink the covenant background should be obvious this cup is the new covenant in my blood so it's altogether fitting that we refer to the lord's supper as a covenant meal but now let's jump in the old testament and see some background here god's dealings with men throughout the old testament are marked by covenants noah abraham moses david and the promise of a new covenant and we talked about that several Sunday, class, Sunday schools ago, several classes ago. As a, a covenant was a solemn binding agreement sovereignly administered by God. There's a lot more you can say about covenants, but if you, if you pare it all down to, to what it is at its root and it's at, at its heart, a covenant in the scriptures is a solemn binding agreement sovereignly administered by God. Sometimes the emphasis, depending on which covenant we're talking about, was on what God promised to do. Sometimes there was emphasis on what man was called to do. Sometimes there was more of an emphasis on the sanctions of the covenant, those terms that enforce the binding nature of the covenant, like blessings and curses. There were various ceremonies used to inaugurate the covenant, to put it into effect. There were often sacrifices offered. Blood would be sprinkled. Sometimes a meal was eaten as a pledge of loyalty to the one who provided the meal and who inaugurated the covenant. And, and we've lost this. Meals in Near Eastern Semitic culture were hugely important. We're not, we're not a part of that culture. And so, it, it, so some of that significance is lost on us. But the Bible was written in the context of that Near Eastern Semitic culture. Meals were hugely important. To partake of someone's hospitality was to pledge your loyalty to that person. They spread a meal, you sit down and eat, I've got your back. You pledge your loyalty to that person. Now, did I just make that up? No, I didn't make that up. We're going to read a, a, a longer passage than I normally would from Exodus 24. This is... Um, just after the giving of the law, the giving of the Ten Commandments on Mount Sinai. Okay? Then he said to Moses, God did, God said to Moses, Come up to the Lord you and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and seventy of the elders of Israel, and you shall worship at a distance. Moses alone, however, shall come near to the Lord, but they shall not come near, nor shall the people come up with him. 
Then Moses came and recounted to the people all the words of the Lord and all the ordinances and all the people answered with one voice and said, all the words which the Lord has spoken, we will do. What is that? They were pledging their loyalty to God. This is what you said? Ten Commandments? We're going to do it. All that you swore, we will do. And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. Then he rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain with twelve pillars for the twelve tribes of Israel. And he sent young men of the sons of Israel, and they offered burnt offerings and sacrificed young bulls as peace offerings to the Lord. And Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins, and the other half of the blood he sprinkled on the altar. Then he took the, blood, the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people, and they said, All that the Lord has spoken, we will do, and we will be obedient. Pledge the loyalty again. We know they couldn't keep it, okay? But I'm, this is what they did. So Moses took the blood and sprinkled it on the people and said, Behold, the blood of the covenant, which the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Then Moses went up with Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel. And they saw the God of Israel. And under his feet there appeared to be a pavement of sapphires, clear as the sky itself. Yet he did not stretch out his hand against the nobles of the sons of Israel. And they beheld God, and they ate and drank. Well, was this a picnic? Did they carry their Yeti coolers up on the mountain with them, full of kosher food? I don't think so. Now, I'll admit, at this point, I'm going to read something into the text that it doesn't say, okay? But I'm pretty convinced that there was a meal there that God spread for Moses and Aaron and Nadab and Abihu and the seven elders of Israel. And they pledged their loyalty. All that you said, we will do. And as the representatives of the people, they all went up and they sat down in the presence of God and they ate and drank. They accepted his hospitality and they pledged their loyalty to him. Now, if you still think that's a little bit of a stretch, um, let me take you to one other reference. There, there are others. There's a reference to this in Obadiah 7. There's a reference in Exodus 34, 12 to 15. There's a reference in Numbers 25, 1 to 3. But I'm going to read you Psalm 41 and verse 9. David is lamenting the fact that, that, that all these enemies are against him. And his heart is broken. And he's grieved that enemies are, are against him. And he's not just talking about the Philistines. Because he says, Even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. Most likely a reference to when Absalom tried to take the throne from David and David's trusted counselor, Ahithophel, jumped ship 
and went to be Absalom's counselor. My close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, he pledged his loyalty to me, and that's what, that's what went through David like a, like a corkscrew knife. The guy who pledged his loyalty to me, he ate my bread. He's lifted up his heel against me. Where else do you read that statement? He who ate my bread has lifted up his heel against me. Where else do you read that? Somebody tell me. At the Last Supper, when Judas left to betray him. Wow. We'll, we'll, we'll come to that text in just a minute. But um, let, let's jump to the New Testament. And uh, 1 Corinthians 10, 16 to 21. Is not the cup of blessing which we bless a sharing in the blood of Christ? Is not the bread which we break a sharing in the body of Christ? Since there's one bread, we are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Look at the nation Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices sharers in the altar? What do I mean then? The thing sacrificed to idols is anything, or that an idol is anything? No. But I say that the things with the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. And I do not want you to become sharers in demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of the demons. You can't partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. You can't have divided loyalty. And this is right in the context of, of talking about the um, breaking of bread and, and the drinking of wine. We, we, it's not the blessing which of us is sharing in the blood of Christ, the bread which breaks sharing in the body of Christ. That's our loyalty. That's where our loyalty belongs. That's what we do when we eat the bread and drink the cup. We declare our loyalty to him. And so it's unthinkable that we should partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. John 13, I I do not speak of all of you. I know the ones I've chosen. This is Jesus speaking, but it is that the scripture may be fulfilled. He who eats my bread has lifted up his heel against me. And there it is. When Jesus said this, he became troubled in spirit and testified and said, Truly, truly, I say to you that one of you will betray me. The disciples again, looking at one another at a loss, know of which one he was speaking. There was reclining on Jesus' breast one of the disciples whom Jesus loved. Simon Peter therefore gestured to him said, and said to him, Tell us who it is of whom he's speaking. He, leaning back on Jesus' breast, said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus therefore answered that the one for whom I shall dip the morsel and give it to him. So when he had dipped the morsel, he took and gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. He who has eaten my bread pledged his loyalty to me, has lifted up his heel against me. So, I, the, the point is that 
when we come to eat the Lord's Supper, we're coming to pledge our covenant loyalty to him who loved us and gave himself up for us. What we give, we have to think about the Lord's Supper in terms of what we get. Don't we? Not so much in terms of what we give, but we give, we give, we give, we give a pledge of our loyalty to the Lord Jesus. And I think there's also an implication here for our loyalty to and love for one another when we come around this table. Since there's one bread, we or many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. We're in this together. We're one body. We're many members, but one body. But now there are many members, but one body, and the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Again, the hand of the feet, I have no need of you. I just... No. We all partake of the one bread. We're many members of one body, and there's a sense of loyalty here. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Give preference to one another in honor. And Paul says that in Romans 12, in a similar context to 1 Corinthians um, chapter 12, when he's talking about the different various members of the body. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. So what we give is a pledge of our loyalty primarily to God. We don't want to eat his bread and then lift up our heel against him. And don't we do that in a thousand little ways? We pledged our loyalty to Jesus and we deny him in a thousand little ways. So what we give is a pledge of our loyalty to the Lord and to one another. Um, what we do, we remember. Do this in remembrance of me. When he had taken some bread and given thanks, he broke it. And he gave it to them saying, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. What we do is we remember. We remember him, the Lord Jesus. Let's work this out a little bit. We remember him in his incarnation. The bread represents what? His body. He actually became man. He took on flesh. The wine represents his blood. He had real blood coursing through his veins. He was a man of flesh and blood. Think on that for about one millisecond. Okay, it takes longer than that. Think on that for a, for a whole second. That the Son of God, the eternal, everlasting Son of God, second person of the Trinity, became man. If we really understood that, it would knock every one of us to the floor. This speaks of his humiliation. What he endured just to get here. 
the maker. The maker of Mary's womb lived in that womb for nine months. Humiliation. How the Father loved us to give up His only Son to that kind of humiliation. How you, would, would you, would you, or do you delight in seeing your children, those who have children, in seeing them humiliated? No. No. How the Father must have loved us to give up His only Son to that kind of humiliation, how the Son must have loved us to take on willingly that kind of humiliation. And once He got here, what did He do? This, this, is, this all flows out of, out of, He took on flesh and blood and became a real man. Once He got here, what did He do? He lived a perfect life for us. He lived a life we could not live. He kept all of God's law for us. Perfectly, he resisted every temptation as a man. He said no to every sin. He said yes to all of God's holy requirements. And he did it in a real flesh and blood body as a real man. So that counted for us. And because of that, we have a sympathetic and faithful high priest who is tempted in all things like as we are yet without sin. Take this bread and drink this cup in remembrance of me that I came for you in real time and history with a real body to live in your place, to walk in your shoes, to stand in for you in a way that counted. How do you get all of that out of bread? This is my body. That's incarnation. That's God taking on flesh and becoming a man so that he could work a thorough, perfect, complete, genuine, real redemption for us. This is my body. And this is my blood. Remember, we remember him in his humiliation in the reality of his humanity we remember what he did what happens to the bread what happens to the bread it's broken what happens to the to the juice of the wine it's poured out. The bread is broken and the blood is poured out. We remember what he did. He died. He died. He died the just for the unjust. Because that body and blood were real, they could be broken and poured out and shed. He died not because he was the unwilling victim of the cruel Roman government and the hateful Jewish leaders. They didn't take his life from him. He gave it up because he wanted to. For me. 
He wanted to do that for me. He soaked up the wrath of God because he willingly bowed to the Father's will so that his wrath would not fall on sinners like you and me. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. He took it all for us. Is that what goes through your mind when you tear off that piece of bread? It's what ought to go through our minds when we tear off that piece of bread. That bread is incarnation. It's humiliation. It is sacrifice. It is wrath soaking up. When the pastor stands up in front of that assembly when we gather around the Lord's table and reads those words, do this in remembrance of me. That is a major memory. It's huge. Don't just let those words slide off the pastor's tongue and pass your ears and sit there like a bump on a log. Don't you dare do that! Because this is my body, which was broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. This is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. Do this in remembrance of me. So we remember him. Who he was and what he did. We remember him. But then we eat and drink. We remember him and then we actually eat and drink. We take the elements and we take them in and we partake of them and they become part of us. When we take the bread and eat it. When we take the cup and drink it. We're saying that everything Jesus did in his life and death, in his real obedience, in his utter brokenness, in all of his humiliation and suffering and bleeding and dying, all that he accomplished in those acts of selfless love, all that he secured for sinners, freedom from the wrath of God, acceptance with God, the total, complete, forever forgiveness of our sins, a perfect, spotless righteousness, sonship, adoption, justification, redemption, the guarantee of glorification. All that is wrapped up in what Jesus did for us. I think I got one more. The promise of the Holy Spirit. When we take the bread and drink the cup, we're saying that all of those benefits of this dying love are mine. I have a share in them. If the broken bread stands for all of these things and I eat it, I'm saying I've got a share in all of that. All of that is mine. And I take that cup and I drink it. I'm saying, I've got a share in that. It's mine. I'm declaring by my participation in this covenant meal that I belong to him and he belongs to me and everything he accomplished is good for me. That's a pretty big deal. Isn't it? That's what we do. 
we remember Him. And we eat and we drink. And time is flying, so let me just add this here that we're also preaching. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. What we do is a visible portrayal of the heart of the gospel, the substitutionary life and death of the Lord Jesus for sinners like us. And this is such a good opportunity for unconverted children to see the gospel. Such a good opportunity for you to explain to your children as they watch and as they observe to explain the gospel to them. And to explain to them what it meant for Jesus to take on a body and have real blood in his veins and to sacrifice all that on our behalf. So what we do is remember we eat and drink and we preach. Now thirdly, what we receive. What we receive is grace. So yes, my view of the Lord's Supper is that it is a means of grace. Okay, what is a means of grace? A means of anything is simply a way, a channel, a method, a vehicle used for getting something from one place to another or simply to accomplish a purpose. That's a means. Not very long ago, I had some blood drawn at the doctor's office and the guy was on this arm. The guy took that needle and needles don't bother me. If they bother you, just shut your eyes and plug your ears. He took that needle and and the guy was really good. I hardly, I didn't even feel a prick. It just just slid right in there, and then out came my blood. The needle was a means of taking my blood. Okay, goofy, simple illustration. A means, a means of anything is is a way, a method, a channel, a vehicle used for getting something one place to another, or simply to accomplish a purpose. So, a means of grace is a way, a channel, a method, a vehicle for getting the grace of God to us. And grace here is used in the broad sense of any type of help, aid, benefit, kindness, or blessing that comes to us freely from God. Lord, give me grace for today. Don't you pray that? Lord, thank you for your grace. Well, that's huge. So it's used in, the broad, in a broad sense of any type of help, aid, benefit, kindness, or blessing that comes to us from God. So we can legitimately say that the preaching of God's word is a means of grace. Prayer is a means of grace. We ask for mercy and grace to help in time of need. Prayer is the, is the means of securing that grace from heaven. Public worship is a means of grace. The reading of God's word is a means of grace. So is the Lord's Supper. It's a means by which God gives grace to his people when they gather around his table. Now, how does that happen? How does grace come to us in the Lord's Supper? It's important to say that it's not magic. It's not magic. Maybe, maybe there's a carryover from the Roman Catholic view of transubstantiation, which, which I'm, I'm really not trying to be disrespectful. It smacks of magic. If the bread and the 
wine actually become the body and blood of Jesus. Maybe there's a carryover from that. Maybe it's a consequence of some of the language that's used about the real but spiritual presence of Christ in the celebration of the Lord's Supper. Maybe it's just lack of clarity in our minds about what actually happens when you observe the Lord's Supper. But we sometimes come to the table sort of waiting for some sort of experience, some sort of feeling, something to just come over us that must mean Jesus was here. Anybody ever thought that about coming to communion to the Lord's Supper? that you're just sort of waiting for something to zap you? It's not magic. Yes, there's mystery involved. Christ is spiritually present when we gather. Where two or three have gathered together in my name, there am I in the midst of them. Well, how does that happen? How does grace come to us? Take preaching, for example. How is it that you come away from preaching or from a Sunday school lesson with new resolves or with conviction of sin or with joy and delight or with a crushing sense of your inadequacy or with a fresh sense of your sin or with a new and deeper love for Jesus and for one another or with a deeper sense of the real forgiveness of sins or with a more thankful heart or with fresh repentance for your stubborn pride or with a new awareness of your status as a child of God or with a more tender and sensitive conscience or with a heart burdened for your lost neighbors with new and deeper whatever. How does that happen? When you come away from having been exposed to the word of God and those things are at work in you. The Holy Spirit is at work in us through the preaching of his word. But how does the Holy Spirit do that? I haven't got a clue. I don't know how he does that. But he has access to my heart and mind. And he works within me through the, through the means of his word. So preaching becomes a means of grace and God works stuff in me and in you. I don't know how the Holy Spirit operates with, with my mind and heart and will and affections, and, but I know. I know that he generally does not do those things when I come into the preaching of God's word with a distracted mind, daydreaming, mindlessly going through the motions, checking my phone, fidgeting till it's over, or just sitting there unengaged, waiting, sort of waiting for God to do something. I know he doesn't do it that way. It's not to say that God can't wake you up in the middle of your distracted worship. And get through to you. Because sometimes he does. But that's not the regular process. What did Paul say to young Timothy? Consider what I say. For the Lord will give you understanding in everything. Consider. That word consider is, is a word that means put your mind to work. Put your mind to work. Think about, I think the ESV translates it, think about what I'm saying. For the Lord will give you understanding and everything. That means think about, put your mind to work. And when you do, God often meets you with understanding. The point is simply that when we come to any of the means of grace, we must come with faith, we must come actively engaged and consciously dependent on the Holy Spirit to bless those means. And that is just as true for the Lord's Supper as for any of the other means that God is pleased to use to impart grace to us. So I take you back to our discussion about do this in remembrance of me and eat and drink. 
Let the elements of broken bread and poured out wine stir your mind to recall the reality of his incarnation, the intensity of his humiliation, the depth of his sufferings, the agony of his death, the agony of his death, the substitutionary nature of it all, so that God will impart to you fresh measures of love for the Savior, fresh repentance, renewed loyalty, deeper love for one another. That's how the Lord's Supper becomes a means of grace to us. God blesses our active, purposeful engagement in remembering Him and in eating and drinking. Don't sit around the table and just mindlessly take the bread, take the cup. (coughs) Remember what the bread is. His broken body. His humiliation. His suffering. Remember what his remember what that cup represents. His shed blood. The purchase price for my redemption. What it cost him. And as you actively engage with dependence upon the Holy Spirit, God blesses the Lord's Supper as a means of grace to you and to me. And finally, what we anticipate, the consummation. You know the language of the text. But I say to you, I will not drink this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. For as often as you eat this bread... And drink the cup you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. As much as we deplore the degeneration of our culture. And as much as we grieve the open displays of rebellion against God. And as much as we grow weary of our own remaining sin. And as much as we hurt for broken relationships. As much as we grieve both necessary and unnecessary divisions, as much as we hurt for the persecuted church around the world, every time we gather around the Lord's table, we're reminded that there's a day coming when everything is going to be made right. And all those things that hurt and grieve us and and weigh us down will be no more. Then there'll be a new heavens and a new earth wherein righteousness dwells. Sin will be no more. And someday, the, the shadowy symbols of this supper will give way to the glorious marriage supper of the Lamb. It's coming. And every time we do this, we remember that He's coming. And we're not going to do this forever. We'll sit around that grand table. And celebrate like we have never celebrated before. For who Jesus is and what he's done. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, forgive our mindless, careless approach to any of the means of grace, particularly to the Lord's Supper. The next time we gather around that table, 
May we come with faith, with active hearts and minds engaged in remembering you and in eating and drinking, in declaring our, our covenant loyalty to you, in pledging ourselves to you and to one another, in proclaiming the death of Jesus until he comes. Help us. Help us now in the hour before us. We, we go to our corporate worship. May we not sit there mindlessly. Corporate worship is a means of grace. May we actively engage. May our faith be strong. May our, may our spiritual sight be clear. May the Holy Spirit come and help us. And we bless our singing and our praying and our giving and our hearing and Pastor Mark's preaching. To the good of our souls, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.